Hello, hello. Here's Argy again coming to you on 44 different platform on Broadcast Team Alpha. And uh, we're trying to find things, find stories and facts and figures and all kinds of interesting information that you maybe have never heard before or is hard to believe. And I think this story I'm going to talk about tonight is one of those. I want to talk about something. I want to talk about a UFO crash that hardly anybody knows about, but it's been very well verified. And it's a phenomenal story. And I have the evidence in form of government documents. And I'm going to show them to you. In fact, I'm going to make sure that you, by watching this video, can read the documents yourself because I'm going to show them to you. And then you can go and research beyond that because this one is well worthy of sticking your nose into because it is so interesting because we have the details of what the craft looked like, the pilots in it, and what happened around it, the language, the, yeah, you're going to see. And uh, <clears throat> this is the Kalahari Desert Crash. And that happened on May 7, 1989. And the thing about it is that it's been so well covered up for a very long time, but it is declassified now. So you could probably get your hands on it somewhere. I got my hand on an early one right after that it happened. And I'll explain how here in a second. Right after the crash and about one or two months afterwards, uh, we got our hands on it from um, uh, the document came to a friend of mine in Omaha, Nebraska. It came to Harry Jordan. He is a teacher at, um, actually, he's probably retired now. He's the teacher at um, a high school in Omaha. And um, it came from a Jesuit priest in Switzerland. And we discussed this and we kind of back engineered our thoughts a little bit. And we found that it very likely that he got it from the deep, dark secrets within the Catholic Church. And uh, that makes sense because he gave us a document that uh, was classified top secret by the South African Air Force. And uh, also, at that time, the MUFON director in Nebraska, Jack Kasher, got involved with it. And uh, I was helping out with all this looking into it. And we found that this one is real. Because there are, we found out later now, that there's two documents that claims to be from the South African Air Force regarding to this crash. And uh, this is the one, the first one that surfaced anywhere. The other one came later. And this one had more information in it than the, the later one. 
So I think this one is probably the one that is more on the mark because this one also have the lettering and the symbols and the language that was deciphered from the, the uh, what they found inside the craft. And uh, I'm going to show you the, uh, the document in a little bit here. And I also want to make the comment that the super chat is open. If you like what you hear tonight, feel free to support us there also. It really will be appreciated. And I thank you so much for that. Now, let me tell you the story, how it started. The uh, NORAD, the, um, the North American Defense, they contacted the South African Air Force and said, there is a craft coming up from Antarctica approaching South African air, airspace. You need to investigate. So the Air Force jumped on it. They sent two Mirage jet fighters up. And one of them had an, um, an aircraft-mounted Thor II experimental laser cannon. Now, for many of you, that is an unknown term. But both the laser and the maser cannon has been around for a long time for experimental purposes, and they're hardly ever used because we're not supposed to have stuff like that. It's just now that they're starting to come out with laser cannons on airplanes. But they had it in 1989. So uh, these were experimental ones at that time. And I, I, I'm going along with that. It probably was experimental, but it was very effective because they got permission to fire at the craft coming up from Antarctica. And they did. Well, actually, the one aircraft that had the cannon fired and they blew a 30 centimeter hole right through the craft. There were several bright flashes of light and the craft started slowing down and it descended towards the surface at a 25 degree angle, as it says in the report. Now, this shooting down on this unknown aircraft was okayed by squadron leader Goshen and they had radar tracking of the craft all the way from high altitude until the impact of the ground. Now, they sent two helicopters out, and the helicopters got to the site very quickly after the crash. And they kept circling the craft, and uh, they noticed that... Uh, the, uh, there was a lot of uh, magnetic and there was heat coming from the crash site, magnetic disturbance and heat. And uh, the retrieval team, when they came there, they noticed a 12 meter deep crater. And the crater, according to the report, it says it's about 150 meters wide. 
that's 450 feet for you Americans. Now, that's amazing. In the middle of that was this craft sitting almost intact. It was bent a little bit, so they were damaged. And uh, they, uh, it, it was a silver disc and there were extreme heat around it for hours afterwards. The reason they uh, were able to make sure that was that way is because the rock around the craft, rocks had melted together. And depending on what kind of rock, you know, that's a lot of heat. There also was that magnetic and radioactive radiation coming off the craft. And they saw no seams, no bolts, no doors, no windows. It was all one piece. And uh, they, uh, they saw that in the crack where it was bent, it looked like it had, it doesn't say that it, it looked like it had landing gear. So it was capable of sitting on the ground. It wasn't just a flying machine. Now they finally got inside, but it was very difficult to get inside because they, there were no doors on it. They tried to break it open. That didn't work. They tried uh, blow torches. That didn't work. They tried a lot of different things and it didn't work. So they started touching the outside of it until they found the spot that was they could move a little bit and the whole side of the craft opened up. So evidently that was the door handle. Now also they did get inside and they talk about there were three pilots in it. The three pilots in it, they were uh, fitted with tight kind of body suits that went up to the neck. And from there on, there was just the head, but up to the neck, there was clothing. And uh, these were four and a half to five feet tall. They also had the big wraparound eyes, and they were what we call the grays. And they also found that under the suit, they found a fungi looking substance, slimy substance around them, especially around the middle of the body. And there was scaly skin and looked like sores. That's interesting. Of course, then again, if you wrap your foot in plastic for days and weeks, chances are your skin will turn bad too. So we don't know why, but this is a little different because they don't work like us. And, um, and what we also find that the craft was taken at night to a uh, secret Air Force base in uh, South Africa. And they forensically investigated uh, both the craft and the people 
they uh, were able to communicate with him. The uh, forensic investigation was led by Dr. Hust uh, Manjevsky, probably a Russian. That's a lot of Russians in South Africa. Uh, he was with the Department of Microbiology at the University of South Africa. He found that these pilots, now this is going to be a tough one to wrap your head around. These pilots in physiology were closer to a plant than to a human because they were living off of photosynthesis. They had to have sunlight or bright light. So that is kind of, well, when you talk about what could be out in cosmos, anything is on the table. A human or someone that works as a, a plant is hard to understand, but we have to be open to the possibility. And uh, they also were able to communicate with the our you know the air force as well as among themselves among themselves they communicated always with mind to mind and it seemed like they had a group mind a hive mind a kind of like the borg on star trek you probably remember those and uh, what they found also is that when they talked with the, uh, they, they made some sounds that could be de determined to be more like a language, but uh, they were also mind to mind with the people uh, interacting with them from the university or the Air Force. So um, the linguistic group was involved in finding uh, an interpretation of their language and the symbols and the lettering. And uh, I think they, they were able to break the code of the language and they took credit for that. But I have my own thought on this because these kinds of languages are very difficult to break. Look how long it took them to break the code of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. That wasn't done overnight. Years. And if they have a language like this, how do you compare one section, one symbol, and the connection between them? That is going to be really difficult to determine. I think they had some help from the CIA or the US Navy because they have identified more than 57 and they admit that in their own papers, 57 plus extraterrestrial entities that come here and visit every so often. Some of those they have made contact with through crashed flying saucers or captured flying saucers. So they have learned their languages as well as learn how and who and why they're here. So I think they had some help. 
because um, when we got this about a month or two after the crash, that is not enough time to break uh, extraterrestrial language. That's my claim, of course, but uh, I'm, I'm going to stand by that one. The whole report is signed by Lieutenant General F.S., that is Foxtrot Sierra, Visagia. He, he is with the Department of Special Research and Investigation in South Africa. Now, there is a file number. If you are in South Africa and you want to do something similar to what the Freedom of Information Act is here in the U.S., you could use this file number and you may be able to get your hands on the real thing. I will read the file number to you. And that is... Uh, I will say it first, and then I will use the uh, phonetic alphabet. G, D, X, C, T, P, A, 7, A, 3, A, 1. That's Golf, Delta, X-Ray, Charlie, Tango, Papa, Alpha, number 7, Alpha, number 3, Alpha, one and uh, that is kind of the skeleton of everything now i'm going to show you the document that is classified or i think from what i hear is that it is declassified now but you know how they do that you know they keep moving it around so nobody can find it if you find it and you come back next week it's gone so it's to somewhere else. And uh, that's the same thing if you want to find something with the CIA. They move things around. But for the CIA, it's pretty actually simpler because you can go into a place called the reading room. From there, you can get it to through everywhere. So just remember that. Here is the document from the South African Air Force. That's the first front page. And then we have the um, page number two here, that's South African Air Force at Valhalla Air Force Base in Pretoria. They speak of Operation Silver Diamond. Actually, that's the code name. I'm moving it here so that those of you that are researching out there, you can pause the video and you can read it. And then you can move on to the next page. As soon as I bring it up, pause it again so you can read it. Here you go. That's the third page. I'm going to be doing this here. There you go. And uh, they call talk of silver diamond again. And that's uh, red 
top secret. And here we go. I'm a little closer. Okay, and here's a page that is a little difficult to read, but I think you can navigate yourself through it. And here goes uh, the first page. I'm going to go a little closer here. Eyes only. Nobody is supposed to make a copy of this page. Or actually the whole document. And here is copy one of three. Okay. Here we go. Classified content. Do not divulge, eyes only. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I got one more page left, and then you're going to see something really interesting. There's that number at the bottom, the one I read to you. Now, we're getting to something really interesting. Here is the language, the lettering, the symbols that represents the wording of their communication. I am not so sure that it covers any more than the wording. Because in any communication, there is more than just the words. It could be the mental images we create on the basis of the words. I am not so sure if that is covered or if there is any other communication than the actual lettering. But anyway, this is a written language of the extraterrestrials. Wait a minute, there we go.
That's it. So now I'm going to ask the researchers out there. You want to learn a foreign language? A really foreign language? Go to work on that one. And then sit outside at night. Have one of these pen lights. Put that into the sky. And start thinking in that language. Wouldn't that be an interesting experiment? Who would understand you out there who come here and say, wait a minute, where did you learn that language? Who are you? I know that particular statement sounds almost like a joke because it's hard to learn that from. But it would be an interesting experiment. Anyway, I think I think this will cover it for now on this one. There is more because I noticed in the one I have, there were two more pages. And for some reason, I am missing them. I know I got them somewhere in my files. I got, uh, God, I have file cabinets like you won't believe in here. There's about five of them right here around me. And there's more, but I got it somewhere and uh, I'm going to go through them and see if I can find it sometime. And I'm going to add that to it. But this is as interesting as it gets because this one is very well documented. And the, the thoughts behind it kind of alarms me a little bit because they saw a craft coming up from Antarctica. They could not identify it. And because they did not respond to contacts, both on the international emergency frequency, 121.5, or other frequencies, there were no answer. What if it had been an aircraft that had total electrical failure? They couldn't answer, but they still shot it down. That is the mentality of the military globally. Life does not mean anything to them. It is all about them, their knowledge, their power. Do we think maybe we need a different system of management? We are seeing it right now in two places around the world where the power for hunger, the hunger for power kills millions. We need to think about this because we, by doing nothing, allows it to happen, to exist, and to grow. I want you just to think on that seed for a little bit. Think on it. 
what needs to be done to change the attitude of the ones that is killing millions for the reasons of profit and power and ego. The world population need to get involved. And when they do, it starts in the mind. We start affecting other people by the way we think and we imagine. So let's do that. That is what Nora and I and our mastermind group is doing on Sundays. We create a timeline for ourselves where there are good things in it. Anything else is on the outside. If you want to be part of something like that, or if you want to come and have a look and see what we do, because we create sometimes things out of seemingly absolutely nothing, because we reach into the quantum, create and bring it into the physical with us. So if you want to come and visit and see what we're doing, we do incredible things. So send us an email to the mastermind connection at gmail.com. The mastermind connection at gmail.com. I'll send you some information and a link so you can come and observe and watch and see if you want to be part of the family. Anyway, I think that will do it for now. So uh, I thank you very well for listening. And we'll see you in the next video.